I'm going to turn to our Bibles now and read from Philippians and chapter 2. Over this uh, Christmas period as a church here, we've been uh, dipping into the letters of the New Testament to find out uh, what these letters tell us about Christmas, uh, particularly uh, the reason for Christmas and why Jesus came. Uh, what have we seen so far? 1 Timothy, uh, we saw that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came as a, a saviour. Uh, last week when Dylan preached to us uh, from Hebrews uh, chapter 2, uh, we saw that uh, Jesus came to share in our flesh and blood, to become one of us, to be our brother, uh, so that by doing so he may uh, destroy the power of death and free us from the fear of death. And this morning, uh, we're going to see that Jesus comes as a servant, comes as a servant. Philippians chapter two, uh, just going to read from verses five to eight. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Just those few verses that we'll consider together. And just to give us an illustration of Jesus' servanthood, we're just going to read from John's Gospel, uh, chapter 13, and the first six verses. It was just before the Passover festival. So this is the night before Jesus died. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing and he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Amen. That's God's word uh, for us this morning. I presume, uh, I think it's a fairly safe presumption that by now, uh, if, you've, if you were going to put a Christmas tree up, you've got it up already. <laughs> don't think anyone's planning on putting up their Christmas tree uh, this afternoon. And I don't know whether it's because of some postcard that I've seen or some uh, film that I've watched in the past, but I have this kind of picture in my mind of what uh, putting the Christmas tree should look like. <laughs> 
it's the kind of picture perfect kind of postcard idea of putting the tree up. You know, there's kind of just some music playing in the background. <laughs> All the family are smiling. There's hot cups of cocoa. Uh, there's this kind of perfectly uh, color coordinated tree with all these decorations hung up. It's almost uh, symmetrical. This kind of lovely family occasion. It's just all smiles. Now, after uh, 38 years of life, uh, I've realized that that's just not how it goes. <laughs> it's just not how it goes. The reality is just a little bit different. If there's cups of cocoa, there's, it's been spilt on the floor. <laughs> there's that trip into the loft <laughs> to begin with. There's the 15 minute untangling of the, the Christmas lights only to find out that they're broken. You have to go to the shop and get a, a new set. There's pine needles all over the floor. There's temper tantrums and tears. That's just the parents. <laughs> There's the, there's, the, there's the ideal, isn't there? And then there's the reality. And if, as you're trying to put the Christmas tree up, you have in your mind's eye that kind of Christmas card ideal, it just only makes things worse. <laughs> Why do I uh, say all this about the Christmas tree? I think there's some kind of parallel uh, when it comes to church life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a German pastor during the Second World War. And he wrote a book now that's quite famous called Life Together. And in that, he talks about the wish dream church, the wish dream church, the kind of, the kind of idealized version that we, we picture church should be like. And often when we have that picture in our minds, that pitch has more to do with our own desires, what we want, uh, than it, it has to do with what God says in his word. And here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes uh, about the wish dream church. He talks about what happens if we, we hang on to the wish dream too tightly. He says it will sour everything. This is what he says. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the church. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest, and earnest and sacrificial. Do you understand what he's saying? When we, when we keep in our mind this idealized version of what we think church should be like, sometimes that gives us little patience with the reality. What's all this got to do with uh, Philippians 2? Uh, well, uh, Philippians 2 contains some of the clearest and deepest and brightest and richest theology about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The books and books and books have been written just about these few verses that we read. There's so much depth there. But all of that depth, and the reason Paul is, is telling us all this about Jesus, isn't so that we can just kind of uh, fill our heads like a, a theology professor. He's telling us all this so that he can fill our hearts. He can make us big hearted. <coughs> he wants us in our relationships with one another to be like Jesus. That's what he says in verse, verse five. If you 
just flip back to Philippians 2. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. It's thought that these verses 5 to 11 of Philippians are some kind of early Christian hymn. If that's the case, then there's two verses to it. The first verse is about Jesus and his humiliation. And the second verse is about Jesus and his exaltation. But as we look at that, we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning thinking together about who Jesus is and what he's done. The reason Paul wants us to think about that is so that it will affect our relationships with each other. So that this Christ-like mindset would be like a, a, a fine oil that lubricates our interactions with one another as the church. And Paul is encouraging us not to fix our mind on some ideal that we think the church should be like, but to fix our mind on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to do together this morning. As we do that, the first thing we have to see is we have to see just how high, just how high the person of Jesus is and was before he was born in Bethlehem. Paul says that at the start of verse six, who being in very nature God, in very nature God. The person of, of, of Christ didn't come into existence 2,000 years ago in, in Bethlehem's manger. The person of Christ has always been he is the eternal son and the pre-incarnate Christ who would be laid in the manger is spoken about in the Bible in the highest possible terms. It's impossible really for us to imagine uh, or, or put, put the pre-incarnate Christ in any higher place than he deserves. Being in very nature, God, not not becoming in very nature God or existing in very nature God, but being, eternally being in very nature God. John in his gospel tells us those famous words right at the start, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews speaks of Jesus as the radiance of the father's glory, the exact imprint of, of his nature. It's impossible to speak too highly of Jesus Christ. And during the early centuries after Jesus' birth and death and resurrection, there were all sorts of ideas going around among Christians as to who exactly this man Jesus was. The people who taught Jesus was just a man the Spirit of God kind of descended upon him at some points in his life and then left him, but he was just a man like any other man. There were other people going around uh, teaching that Jesus was God, but he wasn't really a man. He only looked like a man, like a, like a ghost. There were other people going around who were, who were teaching like you know, kind of a half and half. Jesus was a strange mixture, maybe 50% man and 50% God. And all these ideas were flying around and in different parts of the world, different locations, they were gaining traction depending on who, who was giving these ideas out, whether they were an influencer 
And it came to a point where uh, the, the leaders of the church came together in a church council and, and had their Bibles open. And they sought to write down the truth in a very condensed form about this man, Jesus, who he was. 325, the Council of Nicaea, this is uh, what they wrote. These are words that the church have gathered around for, for centuries. I think they very clearly teach what's there in the Bible. It says this, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all word, worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. See what they're very clear on there, that this, this man, Jesus, is God in the flesh. And you may be thinking this morning, Luke, why, why are you laboring this, this point? Well, all of these ideas uh, that were floating around in the early centuries about Jesus float around in our world today. I uh, was on Google this week trying to find the words uh, for a little town of Bethlehem because we sang it earlier, but, but that song has uh, some quotes from the creed there, the Nicene Creed in it. And the first, uh, the website I landed on was the Church of Latter-day Saints, uh, Church to Jehovah's Witnesses. And I, I was looking and I, I noticed the verse that talks about Jesus being very God, uh, light of light, uh, begotten, not made. That was missing on their websites because they do not believe that Jesus is God. These things are important because these are the truth about who God is. What could be more important than that? Don't we just need to know the gospel? Don't we just need to know the gospel? That's what we need. That's what we need to pass on. Well, Jesus is the gospel. He himself is the good news. So it's really important that we're clear about these things. Paul wants us to be clear. He is in very nature God. And also this is essential for our discipleship. If we're going to live well together as God's people here in this world, with all of our sin in this fallen world, we, we need to have in our minds, first of all, to see just how high Jesus was before he was born as a baby. And the remarkable thing as we consider just how high the pre-incarnate Christ was, is the rest of verse six. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't hang on to his high position. He wasn't a grasper, a grabber. He's a, he's a giver. One of the great themes through the Bible is the generosity of God. He's a gracious God who gives. And that's what we see here is Jesus didn't hang on to the manifestation of his glory. How unlike us. 
just just wind the clock right, right to the beginning of time. And there we see Adam in the garden. And there's the fruit before him. And what does he do? He grasps, he grabs, he wants to be like God. He wants the glory. And yet Jesus has a greater priority than the uninterrupted manifestation of his own glory. And I am glad about that this morning. See how high and then see how low. That's really the theme of the first half of this passage. See how low. Next comes this great humiliation and it comes in two steps. Two steps. The first is that he emptied himself, or if you've got an NIV, it says he made himself nothing. Just read it to you there. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. We really, as we come to this phrase of him making himself nothing or emptying himself, we need to tread carefully. This is a phrase with a, a history. What does it mean that the Christ emptied himself? In the 18th century, uh, going into the 19th century, there was uh, quite a lot of of talk about this phrase, Jesus emptying himself. There was a, a kind of a track of, of theology that, that kind of gained ground that when Jesus emptied himself, he kind of divested himself of his godness, his complete knowledge, his complete power. He kind of put that aside and he became less than God. You get a, you get a flavor of that actually in Charles Wesley's great hymn, And Can It Be? He emptied himself of all but love. I want you to notice uh, how Paul talks about Jesus emptying himself or making himself nothing. He doesn't empty himself by subtracting something, by, by taking something away. So just look again, at verse seven. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He empties himself by taking to himself our humanity, our very nature. He impoverishes himself, if you will, by becoming a man. He was found in human likeness. Jesus was never anything less than God. It says elsewhere that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. He continued to sustain the world by the word of his power, even as he lay in a manger in Bethlehem. But all, all of his godness, all of his glory was poured into our humanity. His deity was hidden in the weakness of our flesh. He didn't, 
he didn't lose his glory. His glory was concealed. As God, Jesus has rights. He has rights to be revered. Rights to be worshipped. Rights to be served. Rights to be immune from poverty and pain and sadness and tiredness and humiliation. Yet Jesus didn't hang on to those rights. <coughs> we sing that song, don't we, from heaven you came, helpless babe. We're going to sing it at the end. It says, he entered our world, his glory veiled. And it's as though there in that first Christmas, veil after veil after veil was flown over, was thrown over the glory of the Christ until that glory could no longer be seen. And this is why uh, the angels are so essential in the Christmas story. It needs the angels' intervention, it needs their message. Otherwise, no one would know what was going on. Jesus, when he was born as a baby, he didn't come with a halo around his head. He was an ordinary baby. No one would have known if it wasn't for the angels announcing. Not even his own brothers could see his glory. It's impossible for flesh and blood to recognize who this baby was. So I've looked at this passage this, this week. It's just, it's beyond our comprehension to understand what a big step down that was for the Christ to take on our flesh. <coughs> Impossible. To take on the form of a servant. And as I, I just thought about this and Jesus being a servant, my mind just went to the upper room. That's why we read from John 13. And we see Jesus there in the form of a servant, don't we? You know, they, they, they'd pitched up at the, for the Passover meal, uh, all with the dirty feet. There was no one there, no servant there uh, uh, to wash their feet. And you can imagine the disciples led around the table as they would in that day, feet all smelly, all a bit embarrassed because there was no servant. And then Jesus takes off his coat strips down, wraps a towel around his waist and then comes to Peter and begins to wash his feet, picking out the muck from between his toes. Every now and again, there's a, an example of someone who's great doing something lowly. Just last week, I saw a picture of Prince William future king, serving meals in a soup kitchen wearing an apron. It's very commendable, isn't it? That's nothing. The God of heaven, think how high. And then see how low as he stoops to, to wash the muck off his disciples' feet. But there's a a further step down still. Christ emptied himself. And then verse eight, he humbled himself. 
says by and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Jesus did what servants do. Servants are there to obey. And that's what Jesus did. Picture the, the CEO or, or managing director of some billion pound company. He's usually sat in his office. He, he asks for something to be done and it happens. Picture him taking a job as a, an apprentice tea maker. Going around serving tea to all the employees. And now think about the Lord of creation, the king of all ages, the one to whom every one of us owes complete obedience. And that God comes, is born as a man, and he learns obedience. Obedience to Mary and Joseph. But ultimately, obedience to his Father in heaven, that he displays perfectly throughout his life, living moment by moment to please his Father in heaven, to glorify his Father no matter what it cost him. He would do his Father's will. Remember when he was in the desert, hungry, without food, for 40 days and the, the, the devil came to him and tempted him, turn these stones into bread. Jesus could have done that. He could have done that to satisfy his own appetites. But he didn't. Because he was the one who said, I have food that you do not know. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And never once does Jesus in his own interests or in his own defense break beyond the limits of his humanity. He chose to obey his father every moment of every day in his thoughts, in his words, in his actions, in his feelings, in perfect submission to his father. And he would become obedient even unto death. If that were not low enough, the death of a cross. As a criminal despised and rejected, accursed and condemned. Do you see how high? And then do you see how low he has come? Quote from a man called Donald MacLeod, who's, who's now died, but a fantastic writer. He says this, his incarnation was only the beginning of a long downward journey through homelessness, poverty, exhaustion, shame and pain to the distress of Gethsemane and beyond that to Calvary. Every moment in that journey from Bethlehem to Calvary was chosen. Every moment on the cross from the third hour to the ninth hour was chosen. Every day of our Lord's life, he re-enacted his self-emptying, renewing the decision that he had made, renewing the decision that made him nothing and choosing to move further and further into the pain and shame involved. He loved his own and when it became clear what that love would cost, he went forward, trembling, to become what his people's sins deserved. 
What a wonderful, wonderful Jesus. So you think about just the, the heights of his glory and then the depths of his humiliation. Just want to bring three points of, of application for us this morning. The first thing we need to see from this passage is to see how he has served us. You need to see how he has served you. This emptying of himself, this, this humbling of himself, he did that for you. It's not something he was forced to do. It wasn't something others did to him. He was the active agent. He, he humbled himself. He emptied himself and he did that for you. He emptied himself so that you could be filled. He stooped down and put on our flesh so that we could be lifted up and become children of God. He wrapped himself in a towel, took on the form of a servant so that he could wash you clean from your sin, make you holy. He died so that you could be redeemed. He bled so that you could be forgiven. He loved us to death. That's people like us. People like you and me whose first thought is always for ourselves. People like you and me with selfish hearts. Jesus loved us like this. Again, just a little bit more from the creed. This is how it goes in the Nicene Creed. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Spirit, he became incarnate of the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. <coughs> he suffered death and was buried. Under this morning, do you just see what it cost Jesus? Have you recognized just how he has served you? Maybe you know this, this story. You've heard this story before but you've never seen yourself in the story. Jesus did this for you. And there's a sacrifice that we don't often think about. We think about, when we think about Jesus' sacrifice, we think about his death on the cross, and that's right, that's central. There's another sacrifice that I've been reminded of this week, and that is when Jesus took on our flesh. He didn't do that for a time. He bears the form of a servant for eternity. He is our man in the glory. It wasn't just for 33 years that he took on flesh. He took on flesh for eternity. For you and for me. He is forever the servant king. And because of that, one day when we see him, we will be able to embrace him. And he will be able to wipe away every tear from our eyes because he is forever the God-man. So our first response to this passage this morning is that we need to meditate on it until our hearts melt. 
just a bit early in Philippians 2, uh, Paul says this, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in his spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. I wonder this morning, do you sense encouragement from what we're thinking about? Do you feel his compassion, his, his tenderness towards you? Do you sense his affection? It's so important that we do that because that is the engine room of our discipleship. So that's the, the first thing. Just see how he served you this Christmas. The second thing is we need to see how we've served ourselves. We need to see how we've served ourselves. As I looked at this passage this week, uh, my first thought wasn't actually, isn't it great how Jesus serves us? I got there eventually. But my first uh, thought, or maybe feelings better, because it was a little bit more visceral than a thought, was how I despise my selfishness. How I despise my self-serving nature. It's painful to look back and see how often my actions and, and words have been driven along by my own selfishness. That's what we are as sinners, aren't we? We are self-servers. We love our own glory. In the light of Jesus serving and humbling himself, it's painful to see how we serve ourselves. If we were to go through the past week and, 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 and pile up all of our thoughts, and if on one side we would have a pile of all those thoughts we've had about ourselves, and a pile on the other side of all those thoughts we've had about other people, you, you know which pile is going to be the bigger pile, don't you? When plans are changing and circumstances change, no one has to teach me to think, how is this all going to affect me? Uh, what, what's best for me? No one has to teach me that. <laughs> we are enamored with our own image and committed to the promotion of our own glory. And it's all too possible for us to do something that looks outwardly good and all the time have our eyes on ourselves. But here in these verses, these verses I think are like a furnace. They're like a furnace to which we can bring all of our pride, all of our selfish ambition and, and sling it into the fire. See, selfishness will hinder me as a husband it will hamper me as a father. It will disturb, distort my work as a pastor. And that's why when Paul writes in chapter two, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In a sense, there's nothing wrong with ambition. If by ambition, we just mean to do something as well as we can. But that's not often how ambition goes. Ambition usually means to do something better than others, to be the best. Ambition is usually competitive and that's all wrong. And Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain pride. And as we sit in the glory of Christ's humiliation, We see our pride and our ambition for what it is and it withers 
it dies. So see how he has served us. See how we have served ourselves. And then finally, to set ourselves to serve others. Just read verse 3 and 4 of Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. When you read that in Paul's letter, it just sounds so easy, doesn't it? <laughs> just look out for the interests of others. Simple. And yet we know, don't we, in reality, that it's just so hard. It's so hard to put aside my own good and serve others and to do that whatever it costs. It simply doesn't just mean doing what anyone else wants you to do. But it means being radically committed to one another's good. Whatever that costs us. It's that classic scenario, isn't it, of people being polite, sat around the, the table. Maybe you'll have this tomorrow at Christmas dinner. You know, they kind of, oh, no, you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. No, oh, I insist, you go first. No, you go first. <laughs> that's not, that's not what Paul is, is meaning. What Paul means is that when the dishes are there to be done, we don't steer clear of the sink. We get up and we do them. It means we, we love each other even when it's hard. It means we, 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 we are committed to each other even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's difficult. It means we persevere in life together when it's painful, when people offend us. I mean, what is our offence compared to the humiliation that Christ suffered? It means that we forgive. It means that we continue to serve, even if no one notices or even if people criticise. The call for us is we, we, we see just how high Jesus is and how low he came. The call for us is to set ourselves to serve one another. And it means that when our kind of wish dream church, to borrow Bonhoeffer's phrase, when our wish dream church doesn't materialize, we don't throw in the towel. <laughs> we continue to serve. And I think probably the most challenging thing is that this servant-heartedness doesn't begin in church. It begins in our homes, with our families. Sometimes the hardest place to serve, isn't it? Those of us who are husbands, to, to serve our, our wives. It's a great danger that we kind of are a terror to live with and then we come to church and it's all smiles and we can't do enough for people. But that's not how it should be. Service begins in our families. Children, those of you who have siblings, service begins with your siblings. Looking to help and encourage brothers and sisters. 
we're only going to do this, aren't we? We're only going to do this as we fix our eyes on Jesus. As we see his glory, as we see his humility, and we know that all that is for us.